0: Colossians chapter 2, if you'll turn there, continuing our study in the book of Colossians. We've gone as far as verse 3, Colossians chapter 2. As we opened up chapter 2 last week of this epistle, the Apostle Paul would express his concern that he had for the Christians in Colossae as well as in Laodicea. Uh, Colossae and Laodicea were close by in the uh, Lycus Valley. Uh, they were uh, churches that Paul had written to the, in prison. The book of Colossians we have in the canon of Scripture. At the end of this book, he's going to uh, tell us that he wrote a letter to the church of Laodicea. We do not have that in the canon of Scripture. But he would say to them that I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you There in Colossae and also Laodicea. And even though Paul had never been to those cities, he did not establish those churches. He did know some of the Christians there. We know... A papyrus who came from Colossae traveled over to Rome to visit Paul as he's in prison to tell him of the affairs of the church. Uh, Onesimus, Philemon, but a lot of the Christians he did not know personally in those churches. And even though he did not know them, he still had a deep concern for them. He, he writes in chapter 2 a conflict, and now he shares with them that they should continue to be rooted and established in Christ. And before we continue, let's pray Father, we do come to you as we, Lord, uh, we honor your word. And it's not just uh, an exercise, an intellectual exercise that we're going through. But, Lord, we want to, um, Lord, take your word, have it worked in our hearts and apply it in our lives, that we might walk wisely in your ways, to know you more, to understand that in Christ uh, we are complete. And to have that assurance. Father, I pray that we'd be free from distractions this morning. We'd turn the ringers off our phones. And be attentive for the next few moments here as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've discussed going through Colossians so far, that there are those who had come into the church there in Asia Minor. And they had false doctrine. And we left off at verse 3 of chapter 2 last time. Where we're told that in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that really is going to be an emphasis in the verses that we're going to be studying in chapter 2 here this morning. And the Christians had received Christ Jesus, the Lord, in their lives. So Paul, we're going to see, is going to write, You continue to walk in him. Be steadfast in your faith. Be rooted and built up in Him that is in Christ, and the Apostle warning them against these false teachers at verse four. As we read now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. This is very important for us to to note this because those Gnostics that were coming into the church, claiming to have unique uh, revelation and knowledge that no one else had, they would come and they were very persuasive. And even in the church today, there can be those. That seemed to be persuasive. And here and at this time, the Gnostics that were coming were so inviting. Their leader's persuasive in what they spoke. And Paul's warning them that if you follow them, you will be deceived. You will substitute man's ideas and false religion for God's truth. And here's the thing about deception and those who bring it into the church. They're not going to advertise and announce that this is false doctrine. They themselves believe that it's true. They're not going to announce that as false doctrine. It will be similar enough to the truth to be dangerous. And I know that many of you, you know this, particularly if you've been here at Calvary Chapel for any length of time. But it is absolutely essential. It is critical. It's imperative today that you know and are familiar with the Scriptures, that you're grounded in the Scriptures, God's Word. Because if we are not, we're going to get deceived. There's too many voices, and those voices can be deceptive and very persuasive to, to lead us away from the truth of God's word. There's so much of it that is coming and flooding into the church. Last week, we looked at Paul's last words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers when they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, also in First Timothy chapter 4, that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. John in his epistles and Peter in his, Jesus expressly said that there will be deception and that it will be worse in the last days. We are to be wise. We are to be watching. And I firmly believe that we're seeing that true for today as we get closer to the return of the Lord. In the Western culture, particularly in our society, the church is in crisis. More and more mainline denominations in their general assemblies and conventions are adopting philosophies of the world. They're abandoning basic biblical truth. They're giving in to culture's demands. We see more and more ministries and independent churches that are accepting any kind of strange and weird doctrine that comes blowing into the church. And they're saying, hey, this is of God. And they will bring you persuasive words. It will sound very spiritual. They sound very intriguing. They appeal to the flesh. They may sound so anointed and dynamic. It feels good. It sounds so good to me. And we need to be careful. Those who will try to convince you, sell you uh, something that is deceptive. So a couple things that for us as believers to remember as we talk about deception and persuasive words taking us away from the truth coming into the church. Keep these three things in mind. Number one is this. When someone tells you that, hey, uh, don't question what is being said over there, that ministry. Don't question what that teacher is saying that new doctrine, that new movement, that new anointing, that new understanding, new revelation, don't be one that questions them because they're a man of God or a woman of God and and you're not to question it at all or you're being divisive and you're a bad person. Don't buy into that. That you're to check everything out with the word of God. That includes me. And we need to be ones in this day and every day that we take what John tells us. It's a commandment. It's not a suggestion that we are to test the spirits to see if they are of God. Because there are many false voices that are out there that are very persuasive and sound good. But it's not true and will lead you away from the truth. Second of all, today with Christians, particularly in our society, form is beginning to take preeminence over substance it is not what is being said that is a priority for people it is how is being said very dynamic you know very persuasive uh, uh certain buzzwords and oratory skill that's what paul was really kind of dealing with with the corinthians when he wrote second corinthians there were those coming in They were claiming to be the most eminent apostles and teachers and prophets, and Paul says that you put up with these guys that are really ministers of Satan. They're false apostles, false teachers, false prophets, and don't be, you know, fooled by them. And even Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. It may sound like light, but it's darkness. And they were putting Paul down as they would come. In the Greek culture, it was not just what was said, but how you said it, how you presented it, your appearance. And they said, don't trust Paul. Don't listen to Paul. His speech is contemptible. He wears those sweaty tent-making clothes. And they were criticizing Paul. And Paul says, why are you receiving these guys that are peddling you know, their doctrine on you? And you put up with them. So Paul was dealing with it in his day. And today you can have those that are really into the entertainment factor. Emphasis on putting on a show. And how many times I've heard Christians say, well, we're going to go to this church because, man, it's just really entertaining. Or he's so dynamic. Or I love his stories. or so persuasive. And listen, hear my heart on this. I'm not saying this because I have sour grapes. And they're not going to my church. And if they're not going to my church, they're really not a Christian or they're not a mature Christian. And it's not that at all. What I am saying is I have heard those and you probably have as well. Well, we don't get a lot of truth over there, but it sure is fun to watch. We don't get much Bible, but look at his personality. And buying into persuasion and and just be careful is what I am saying. If you need to go to another church, and and the Lord does do that, make sure that it's a biblically based church that emphasizes truth. And one of the things about studying the Bible systematically like we do here is you're getting truth constantly and consistently. The truth is just laid out and there isn't this hyper persuasive kind of thing one of the things thirdly that cults will do and, and movements that are very popular that are giving out false teaching is they will try to keep you away from just studying the bible under the direction of the holy spirit studying the bible in its context and what they will do is they will come up with their own bible their own gospel they'll come up with their own interpretation Or they'll take a verse and they'll begin to develop a doctrine around it. Well, Jesus said, just ask whatever in his name and and it will be given to you. So they begin to develop a a faith-based kind of doctrine around it or prosperity doctrine and plant your seed faith in all of this. Listen, keep everything in its context. You'll be reading your Bible, rightly dividing the word of truth, and you are to do that so you can be safe. And again, testing the spirits. You're to be one that is to be continuing in the word of God and keep everything in its context, or you're going to be given into persuasive words, and they can be very persuasive. But Paul continues to write in verse 5, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. I may not be with you in the flesh, but I am with you in spirit. And I'm praying for you always. I'm thankful for you. And I rejoice to see, verse 5, your good order. That word is a word that describes an army that is ready for battle. It's something that I pray that, that we at Calvary Greeley would adopt and take heed to. To set in good order that we would be ready for battle because it is a battle that's raging out there and it's getting more intense. And we would stand for truth. We would stand against deception and that which is false. Remember that the weapons of our battle are not carnal, but spiritual, to have the word of God, speaking the word of God in truth, in love, prayer, putting on the whole armor of God, as Ephesians 6 tells us. Secondly, Paul was rejoicing in their steadfastness in the faith, a term that we've talked about already. It means that you are planted. You are immovable in your faith in Christ. It was the Gnostics that were trying to take them away from the gospel. So you prepare for battle. You guys stand shoulder to shoulder is what you're to do. And against the false doctrine uh, that is coming your way and you continue to be steadfast in the faith and in truth. And as we read again in verse 6: As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So, how did you receive him? You received him by faith, right? And we were ones that we humbled ourselves. We came to Jesus. And from our hearts, we said, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God who died for me a sinner. I give my life to you today. I turn away from the way that I was living. And I believe that you rose again after three days. It wasn't a difficult thing. It was coming in childlike faith and humility. And it's amazing how some that they can make it so difficult for you to receive Jesus. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And I've seen those ministries that really emphasize and and they just press the point that you just can't say a prayer. You can't just raise your hand. You can't just come forward. And we understand that, that raising your hand or coming forward doesn't save you, but it's an expression that I do believe with the heart that Jesus, you died for me on Calvary's cross, for you to be my Lord and Savior. Confession is made into salvation. It's just an expression of coming forth. Some people, they come to Christ and they say, oh, What do I pray? How do I do that? All I know is I need Jesus. Some think more complicated is better. I even heard one teacher say, I was horrified by it, that you can't just simply say a prayer. And think that you're saved. You have to wait 20, 30 years from now and see where you're at if you're still walking with the Lord. Salvation cannot be earned. It's a free gift. And today is the day of salvation is what the scripture says. And just as you've received him, so walk in him. You received him by faith and just walk in faith. Know that you can't perfect in the flesh that which began in the spirit. Walk in that newness of life and enjoy the Lord and rejoice that you're forgiven, saved, and you have relationship and reconciliation with the Father through Jesus Christ. And again, as we read, rooted and built up in him, verse 7 tells us, established in the faith, as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. You at Colossae, and you at Calvary Chapel, be rooted, be built up. It speaks a strength. Now, with the spring and summer rains that we've had, the weeds are starting to get high, aren't they? And sometimes it's kind of hard to keep up with those weeds. And, And now if you try to pull them up, they're rooted in the ground, aren't they? It's pretty hard to do that. You can't pull them up like when they were small and when it was wet. And that's what we are to do. The idea, plant rooted, it stays. And we are to be rooted in Jesus Christ, the Word of God. We are to be established. Build upon the foundation Jesus, rooted up and built up upon the Word of God. I'm so thankful that we have God's Word, that Christ dwells in my heart, so I can be rooted and built upon Jesus to be established and steadfast. So don't give in to deception. I'm warning you, Paul writes. Don't be deceived. And then, secondly, as we move into verse 8 here, don't be cheated. We read, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Don't only uh, give ear to false teachers and false doctrine, but also don't be cheated. That word cheated there in verse 8 has the meaning of to lead you away. To lead you away is prey. The idea of plunder and robbing. Don't get robbed. Don't get cheated. Don't get plundered, led away from the truth. Don't be cheated, number one, by philosophy. The world's philosophy that will take you away from Christ. Now, it's interesting. The word philosophy here in the Greek comes from two wo- root words, phileo, which means love, and sophia, which means wisdom. It is a love for worldly wisdom. There is a difference between worldly wisdom and, and godly wisdom. And the idea is here... As we have learned from verse 3, that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All spiritual godly wisdom is found in Christ, it's not found in the world. And we as Christians are being pressured to accept the world's ideas. We're told to accept the philosophy of the world, the ideas of the world that flies right in the faith, right in the face of the truth of God's Word. And unfortunately, there are more pastors behind the pulpit that are bringing the world's philosophy into the church, the world's ideas. It was the Gnostics that were of Paul's day that had a mixture of Greek philosophy mixed in with Judaism. We have this unique knowledge is is what they would say. And they said that God didn't come into direct contact with the material world. And Paul would refute that as he gave truth to us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, that Jesus is God, and he came in the body of his flesh. God manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. The Gnostics taught that God did not have direct contact with the material world, so he didn't create the world, but a lesser being who created a lesser being that created a lesser being. It's called Demiurge. is what it's called, that created the world. Paul refutes that by telling us that Jesus created all things in heaven and on earth, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 17. The Gnostics taught that God did not directly uh, deal with man in the material world. Paul refutes that by telling us that Jesus is the one that reconciled us to God through the cross of Calvary, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. The Gnostics taught that as they would worship angels, and Paul will refute that later in the chapter, we worship Jesus alone. So what are we here today? What has come into the church today? Well, God didn't really create the worlds in the heavens as told to us in Genesis chapter 1. Most of it evolved. Many of you are familiar with um, Answers in Genesis, the ministry. That's our children's ministry curriculum. Ken Ham, the Creation Museum out in Kentucky, and the Ark. Many of you have been there. Incredible ministry. Well, I remember about 10 years ago personally talking with Ken Ham. And as I was talking to him, he said one of the frustrations that he had, and this was 10 years ago, that as he travels around the world talking to churches and ministries, that he told me 80% of the pastors that he talks to believe in some form of evolution, timeline evolution, progressive evolution, gap theory, evolution, all this stuff. And it flies right in the face of the gospel. God created the heavens and the earth. And when he created, he said, it's all good. And Adam, don't you eat of of that, that tree over there, because you shall surely die. Adam didn't know really what that meant because he hadn't seen death. And for somebody to come along and say, well, God kind of got creation going and then there is a gap in, or there was evolution that took place and things evolved, died and, and progressed the evolutionary processes is taken away from the very gospel that says in Romans chapter 5 that through Adam sin and death came into the world because he sinned. But because of Jesus Christ, he's brought us life. And to say that evolution, that God set that in, in motion, that is saying that God brought death rather than Adam because of his sin. Do you understand the importance of the gospel? He created the heavens and the earth in six days. And then he would say to Moses in the Ten Commandments, you are to work six days and on the seventh day rest. Just says, I created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. That settles it for me right there. My God is big enough to where he created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. But most pastors believe that evolution was used in creation. We need to check things out with the word of God. And so Ken Ham, you know, he expressed that. We know that there's more behind the pulpit that say that, well, Jesus isn't the only way to the Father. There's other ways to heaven. The philosophy of pluralism is growing more and more in the church. There is more in the church of an acceptance of mystical ideas and and beliefs. I read an article a month ago or so that said that a majority of U.S. adults have adopted elements of Eastern faith and New Age thinking. That includes that that a majority of adults in America believe their spiritual energy and physical things, astrology, they believe in Eastern meditations. They use that uh, they believe a quarter of uh, uh, Americans, this survey said that they believe in reincarnation. Now, I think there's nothing more depressing than to believe in reincarnation. I mean, to believe that you can come back in another life form or as another person. I mean, who would want to come back? How depressing is that? Do you want to come back? I don't want to come back. Who wants to go through junior high again and all of that? (laughs) Who wants to embrace that? It's a point at once for man to die and then the judgment. So Paul giving this strong warning, don't be cheated. Don't be led away. Your mind's taken captive by philosophy that which is not according to Christ, the philosophy of man, the philosophy of the world, the philosophy of religion, it may be accepted by culture, it may be pleasing to the world, it may be embraced by the majority, speculating and wondering, being intrigued, but ultimately being robbed and being cheated because it's not according to Christ. Don't be cheated of the truth that has been taught to you. And not only a warning against being deceived and cheated by philosophy, but secondly, empty deceit. One tradition puts this as high-sounding nonsense, just theory and spiritual talk that doesn't hold up to the truth. It is philosophy that is empty, has no substance. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus used the word deceit for deception of riches, as I've already mentioned it. How many people have bought into the prosperity movement and faith movement that God wants you to be wealthy? You just need to plant your seed faith. And by the way, when you plant that seed faith, send the money to me. Make sure you do that. And God doesn't want you to be sick. He, if you're sick, then something's wrong with you. You don't have enough faith or there's sin in your life. These teachings that go around and they're not according to truth and they deceive so many people, but so many have bought into it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, don't be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Ephesians 4, verse 22, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. Paul will address carnality in the next chapter. All these things lead us astray away from Christ. And then the third thing we're told that we're not to be cheated is the traditions of men. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He said, you hypocrites, This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines of the tradition of men. They put their traditions over the word of God. They were coming against Jesus because you don't wash the way that we do. You don't keep the traditions of the elders. Jesus said, you've made the word of God of no effect. Now keep a proper perspective here. Not all tradition that we may adopt is bad, we traditionally meet every Sunday morning and have done so for many, many years here at calvary chapel we We have church on sunday mornings that 's not a bad tradition that we have. I was being reminded uh, of my kids um, we were talking about when they were younger. My kids are all grown. When I would take them fishing, we had tradition that we would stop and get donuts. I liked that tradition. That was a good tradition. Don't make the tradition of man to where the word of God has no effect. And remember that traditions of man has no equal authority with the word of God. I grew up that during Lent, you ate no meat on Fridays. And I ate more fish sticks and tater tots because of something that had nothing to do with the word of God. Fourthly, don't be cheated by the basic principles of the world. That which is contrary to God's way, his standard, the principles and the philosophy of the world. It changes constantly, doesn't it? What's popular? What's the latest trend? What's the latest thought, and all of this, it's changing where it becomes even more and more contrary to what the Word of God tells us. And the Word of God is unchanging. It doesn't change. It stands forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And with the basic principles of the world changing constantly, people are more confused today in how they should live than ever before. And they're being cheated because it's not according to Christ. And in verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Now, Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 19, this same thing. This is a clear, dramatic declaration of Jesus' deity. All of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ, that in Jesus there dwells all the fullness. An absolute Godhead and the fullness of the Godhead was in Jesus bodily. And Jesus was fully God and fully man in human or bodily form. Jesus is and was absolutely, fully, completely, perfectly God. And then Paul writes, what does it mean for you and for me? And that is you as a believer, listen, and don't ever forget this. You are complete in him. You are complete in him. Not kind of complete. Sort of complete. You are complete in him. And if Jesus wasn't fully God, we could not be complete in him. And anything that says or anyone who says that we're not complete in him also takes away from his deity, the deity of Jesus. And it is something that we embrace by faith because the Bible declares us. It is not a status that we try to achieve. And if all the fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus... Why would you want to substitute that with man's empty philosophies and traditions and ideas? So Paul's saying again in the beginning of the chapter, I'm concerned for you. I agonize for you. Don't be deceived by persuasive words. Don't be cheated by philosophy of man. It's not philosophy, but it's Christ." You are complete in him. It isn't legalism, but it's Christ. And that's what Paul is going to be emphasizing here in the rest of the chapter. We're not going to finish the chapter this morning, but verses 11 through 13, and then we'll finish up. That in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now remember that the Gentile Christians of Colossae, they were not circumcised. That is that cutting away of the flesh. The covenant of circumcision that was given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter seventeen. Abraham This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and and you and your descendants after me. So every male child after you shall be circumcised. So that was given to the descendants of Abraham. So it was to be a cutting away of the flesh for the Jews to be, listen, an outward sign that they belong to God. It was to be an outward sign of an inward commitment to God. The circumcision of the body was to show that there was a circumcision of the heart. And it was to be a symbol that God's people were cutting away their sinful, fleshly nature. But circumcision over time ended up becoming just this legalistic and religious ritual. Paul was dealing not only with the Gnostics bringing in false doctrine, but also the legalists. And the Lord would say to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your hearts. We saw in the other prison epistle of Philippians that who are those of the true circumcision? Number one, those who worship in spirit. Second of all, those who rejoice in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, those who do not have confidence in the flesh. So God's intention for his people is that there would be an outward sign of circumcision to show an inward change commitment to him, to follow after him, of circumcision of the heart. So what's Paul getting at here in Colossians chapter 2? Simply this. In him you have been circumcised, oh, not physically, not without hands. But you have been circumcised in the spiritual sense, which is more important than a physical circumcision. You are circumcised by the putting off of the sins of the flesh. And then Paul, in verse 11, relates circumcision to baptism. You are circumcised by Christ. You are buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith, verse 12. In other words circumcision takes place in you Gentiles when you put off the sins of the flesh and baptism, which is identifying yourself with Christ. You're buried with Christ. And in that, in baptism, you're saying, I have died to the old life, the life of sin, the life being controlled by sin and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. And when you come out of the waters, you are identifying with Christ. In that newness of life, in that new resurrected life, you know the verse, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So baptism, when we do it here in a few weeks, is a public statement that shows that I'm already saved. I, I've been born again. That I am a Christian. Circumcision of the heart that is a public declaration. That I'm going to follow Christ. Baptism is important, but it doesn't save you. Is that person coming out with the testimony that I am saved? But there are those who are coming along saying, it's not that simple. It's not that easy. You have to be cut if you want to be justified. There has to be a cutting away of the flesh. Paul says, no, in him. In Christ, you're complete in Him. Amen? You're complete in Him. In Him, you were circumcised. He has made you alive. He cried from the cross, it is finished. And there are those today that will come along and say, it's not that simple. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. And it's an offense to the cross. It is saying that Jesus' work on the cross is not sufficient for your salvation. You're not complete in him. That you have to do something to earn salvation. It is a free gift as very clear in the scripture. We were dead in our trespasses before we came to Jesus and received him by faith. And the forgiveness of all our trespasses and sins, we were dead. But he has made us alive, given us that newness of life. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead. But because of his great love for you and for me, he has made us alive. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for... We thank you for your word given to us, that we can have confidence in the assurance that we're complete in you, that you did finish the work on Calvary's cross. And as we have received you by faith, humbling ourselves and coming in childlike faith, that, Lord, that we just are to continue in that faith, walking with you, to be rooted and grounded in the word of God and having the assurance that, that we are complete in Christ, that he has made us alive, that we would have a desire to circumcise our hearts and to live for you, Lord. We don't want to live after the world or the world's philosophies or empty deceit. We don't want to be persuaded away from the truth. We want to be rooted and grounded in you, Lord, in your word. Help us to do that. To walk in godly wisdom, to trust your word, to know that your word is sufficient for our lives and true for us. And, Father, I want to pray for anyone who is here has not made a commitment to Jesus Christ. He loves you, and he came and he died for your sins because we're all sinners, and the wages of sin is death. And you are to come to Christ. Today is the day of salvation in humility, in surrender, and turning away from the world and saying, I come to you, Christ, and I now ask for you to be my personal Lord and Savior. You come as you are, but you come sincerely. You repent. Quit going in the direction you're going. Turn to Christ and call out to Him. He loves you so much. He is your salvation. He is the Savior of the world. He is the way to the Father in the eternal life and forgiveness. And from the cross, He did say it is finished. He did the work. Now you come in faith. And you can come to Him and say sincerely in your heart, Jesus, I ask... That you forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner. And I believe you died for me on Calvary's cross. And you were put into a grave and you rose again. And you are Lord. And you're my Savior. Be my Lord and Savior. Sitting upon the throne of my life. Forgive me. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you that I'm complete in you. And Lord, that just as I've come to you in faith. To continue to walk in you. With you in faith. Thank you for this new beginning and bringing me to the family of God in Jesus' name. Amen.